0: I had a great gig in Ann Arbor, Michigan this week. Drove up there, just wonderful people, a great venue. Everybody treated me so nice. So many folks that listened to the show said nice things to me. I really enjoyed it and I want them to know that. It'd been a while since I'd played in Ann Arbor, so it was nice to be there. And I promised to try my best to uh, come up a little quicker this time. But as I was driving up, I went through Cincinnati and I had memories of when I was a kid, Even when I was in my 20s, I was a Cincinnati Reds freak and I would drive to Cincinnati and as part of that trip I would stop off and eat Skyline chili. So in the interest of partaking in things indigenous to the area, which I always try to do when I travel, I stopped off on this trip and I ate me some Skyline chili. And I have to be honest, I don't have the slightest idea what I once saw in Skyline (laughs) chili. It was terrible. About about 25 years since I've had it, so I guess my palate has changed. And for those of you around the world who don't know, Cincinnati has their own way of doing chili. And it's a very good thing, but not a big Skyline fan anymore. I apologize to my friends in Cincinnati. But on the way back from the gig in Michigan, I drove up to Hell, Michigan. I can say that I've been to Hell and Back, a little town called Hell. And that was fun, drove back down through Battle Creek, Michigan, visited the grave of Sojourner Truth. She was born a slave, later became an abolitionist, women's rights activist, just a wonderful, wonderful person that I wish we had more of in this world. I was paying my respects to her at a cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. And a couple of squirrels that were jet black came running out in front of me. I had never seen black squirrels in my life. So that was worth the trip alone. I had no idea there were such things. I said something about it on Twitter and uh, became painfully aware there's plenty of them in the world. And I must have led a sheltered life and had never seen them. I'd seen the albino squirrels in Bowling Green, Kentucky and in parts of Ohio. But I'd never seen a black squirrels until now. I wish they would come live in my backyard. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ben Swanson. Ben is the co-owner of Secretly Group. You can find out everything you need to know about Ben at secretlygroup.com. Some of you have probably heard me talk before about when I first started this show, I made a list of episode ideas. Some shows that I would like to do one day in the future a show about Jason Molina is just always on the back burner and I was thinking about it one day so I sent a message to our friend John Strom who's been on the show a few times and is my buddy I just asked him do you know anyone who might be able to tell some stories about Jason Molina someone who was close to him and he said yes uh, Ben Swanson would be perfect and John made it possible to get us together and fast forward a few months later and I was in Bloomington And I went to his office and we were able to record this. I should say that we were in a conference room of some sort. There's a lot of reflective surfaces and there's a lot of reverb in this, so I apologize for that, but I don't think it's distracting. And Ben was nice enough to share a lot of great stories. I really appreciate his time. I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show who enjoy Jason Molina's music, so this is for you guys. This is Ben Swanson.
1: Uh, I first heard Jason's uh, music through the first song, Sahaya Seven Inch on Palace music. My brother was going to school here at IU, um, and he was working at it's called WIUX now, the student radio station, and. He had bought the seven inch, or it came into the station. I can't really remember, and you know, he fell in love with it, and he was uh, sending mixtapes back to me, back to Fargo, where I was still in high school. You know, probably on a monthly basis, and around that time, I think this was end of '95 ish, I would say, um, and we were just starting to talk about, you know, the idea of running a label and stuff like that, and we hadn't really connected the two dots of those together yet, but. Definitely sent. He was sending back a lot of music, and that seven inch was something he was he was obsessed with.
0: Remember the first time you met him in person?
1: Yeah, it was uh, in New York. Uh, my first time going to New York uh, at this old at this record store called Adult Crash. Uh, it would have in the summer of '96. I had only been in Bloomington for a couple months, or maybe even a month. And we wanted to start a record label. There was a lot of local bands that we wanted to work with, but we're just trying to figure out what the first thing we wanted to put out with. And we're just obsessed with Jason's music. And uh, we emailed him. You know, we spent like all night crafting, you know, this dumbest, simplest email <laughs> message to him. But we we're like so nervous because like we didn't know him at all, and uh, he was a total rock star in our eyes. And uh, you know, he wrote back like a. Probably a two sentence email. It was really cryptic in his typical Jason way. And, you know, we sort of corresponded back and forth. And we'd always, you know, I think it just is probably only a few emails back and forth, but every email was cryptic. And, you know, finally we got up the nerve to ask him if he wanted to do a seven inch with a label out of Bloomington that hasn't done anything before. And um, he basically, gave us the first in a long line of tests and said if you you know he's like i'm playing a show at adult crash you know on this date i think it was july or august of 96 and uh if you show up i'll give you a dat i'll give you a master and so we and i think it was like two weeks later or something like that and so we piled into the car and drove the 14 hours to new york and showed up about 45 minutes before they played and uh, talked to him for about 45 minutes afterwards. He gave us, you know, we kind of had no idea if he was actually gonna give us a, a master or not, but you know, he did and you know, that's, that's how we first met him. He was friendly, but you know, he was his typical awkward self. You know, he's he was less cryptic, then on email. Like, it was weird meeting him for the first time because it was the lyrics of that first seven inch and the first, you know, couple records are just very unique. And his emails, sort of the way he uses language, fed into that mythology. And then you meet him, and he still had sort of a little bit of that mythology, but it was way less so. You know, he was more personable than that. And it was, it was, I was, I don't know, I, I didn't know what we expect, but I just imagined this like total weirdo and like, you know, and he, he wasn't, you know, he was a Midwest, Midwest kid and just, you know, was a younger than I imagined. And, but, you know, and he was talking to his band, like his bass player, he kept referring to him as a pirate because uh, he was wearing his leather pants for 666 days in a row. And so like, you know, and it was just like one of those, when you first meet someone and you're talking to them for a half hour, that's like just such an odd thing to talk about, but he was, he was really into it. And uh, you couldn't tell if it was true or not, and, uh, but it turns out it was true. I mean, he was a really funny guy. I mean, it's, you listen to his music and it's, you know, the sound of white male depression, for sure. But, you know, you hang out with him and he's a total joker. He, moved, he lived in Bloomington and off and on for several years. And when he first moved to Bloomington, he moved in with my brother and I. And he would do these things called songs, jazz dance. Like he would always have like songs. something is what he would just call whatever, like songs, pumpkin pie or whatever. It was just a dumb thing. But he would just do these like weird interpretive dances out of nowhere, and like it was like the so goofiest, dumbest thing ever. And it's just like you hear some of his songs, and then you just see this guy doing this like weird, goofy interpretive dance. It's just pretty hilarious. You know, one of the other funny things he'd do is uh, the first European tour he went on when they—it was the tour where they recorded Lioness. My brother and our old partner Jonathan were on that tour. I stayed back in Bloomington. This was like, you know, pre-cell phone. This is like 98, 99. This is like where internet is very spotty. You know, we had just gotten a fax machine. And so it was like people still use travel agents and stuff like that. And you weren't buying plane tickets on the web or anything. And so I ended up playing like international travel agent for them as, you know, things, plans would change while they'd be on tour. And so they'd, con- like every day I'd get like a fax from them of, like, we need to book a ferry from, like, Sweden to Germany or something like that. But there would always be, like, um, some drawing of Jason's. It was always, like, handwritten. And there'd be, like, a drawing of Jason's of, like, basically some penis drawing of Jason on it. Every, so, like, there's thousands of penis drawings of Jason, And there'd be, like, a little penis with eyes, arms, and legs. And he would call it Jizzy Spertigans is the characters. yeah, And so he'd always talk about jizzy spurtigans.
0: Was he a, a clean roommate, a dirty roommate?
1: Very clean. Uh, in Oberlin, he lived in this house for several years. And there was different iterations of people that lived there, but he lived there for several years. And I think towards the end, when we saw it, when we went out to Oberlin to, uh, at one point to meet him, um, last few months there he had moved into this it was like a big house like a five or six bedroom house just a total college rental you know shithole and but he had moved into this one tiny like just bigger bigger than a closet that he had put a padlock on he had just like a cot like a little portable record player and maybe like some weird civil war trinkets or whatever it was very spartan but everywhere else in the house was, like, just trash everywhere. And they won some contest on, like, Sally Jeff- Jesse Raphael or something like that of, like, the messiest house in America. <laughs> and so he was living it, and he was, like, he was pretty upset about it, but, like, he kind of, like, didn't care. But that's what he put a padlock on his door. He's like, I don't care what goes on out there. I just have this, like, little cot. So he was, he was very, very neat.
0: Sally Jesse Raphael is the last name I expected.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure it was her. I know. Yeah, I think he was not ambitious in the traditional sense. He had an amazing work ethic, you know, and I think that's very much like the Midwest, Midwestern thing in him. And he was like, he was always, always about the work. The, for the longest time, he'd be up at, like, 5 a.m. and he'd make tea and he would write for, like, the first three or four hours of the day. And that was pretty much every day. And, um, you know, they were touring constantly and all that, you know. But back then, he he was writing constantly. He was just, you know, he, it was a weird time in the music industry because it was the mid-'90s. Um, indie music was had been around for a while, but, like, it was first becoming more accessible to more people and so that's the long-winded way of saying he was ambitious but like it's not like today where like I think a lot of younger musicians people just starting out can see the clear path whether they're able to attain it or not they see like that they need a lawyer they need a manager they need a booking agent and all that and back then people were just like flailing around it's like I just write music and like happy for for anything. I think when you grow up in the Midwest, your natural disposition is that you're fucking isolated. But um, it evolved a, a little bit like in terms of he was definitely concerned about money or finances in the sense that he wanted to be self-sufficient. He didn't, you know, he didn't really care about making a, a ton of money or anything like that. He saw real value. Like he really liked himself as like a blue collar musician. And, like, he, you know, he would have all different iterations of, I just make the donuts, you guys sell the donuts, you know. And that was really, like, his MO was just, like, he just wanted to to make things. So he didn't always have, like, the best business acumen, and he didn't really have that ambition outside of being um, self-sustaining, which he did actually relatively quickly. That's actually something that he struggled with. I think he had a bit of... <laughs> It's not quite survivor's guilt, but, you know, something similar when you're like, you, you're, you know, it's in his, your DNA to be a, a worker, but there's this sort of idea that there's that thing in the back of your brain that like being a full-time musician isn't quote-unquote real work. He knew that, like everyone knew, like you intellectually know that it's real work, but when you, I think it's a real Midwest ethic that like, it doesn't feel like real work, you know, or, or it shouldn't be real work, it's a luxury. And so I think that tension um, was something he always struggled with. And that's, you know, I think that's partly why, you know, again, he'd be up at like 5 a.m. writing songs or he'd be touring all the time or, or whatever. And he was certainly like, you know, we'd have so many conversations with him because he would finish a record and tour on the record, but be playing almost no songs from that record. He'd be playing the new songs that he was writing because that's how he wrote. And it was like so frustrating. And I think towards the, towards the end, especially with Magnolia, um, with that band, they, he began to see, like become a little bit more pragmatic about it and saw that there was like maybe a, um, a bigger game to be played. And one of his ambitions, he had many ambitions with that band, but one of it was for that band to be a self-sustaining unit. And he really took um, to heart the responsibility of making sure that those guys could make a living. He never wanted to do, like he hated taking photos. He, didn't really care for videos that much and, and and all that. He you know, there were certain like old school press that he'd like. You know, if he got in Mojo or, you know, a small mention in Rolling Stone, like that was cool. But um, outside of that, you know, I think he just kind of took it as a You know, the one author he introduced me to was Italo Calvino. Um, but he was really into like the form that, and I can't remember. I'm so bad with names. But some of the the form that Calvino was using in some of his books, and sort of this circular structure to it. And he was just he was really interested in how different people were, um, you know, whether they're authors or or poets or or, or musicians, you know, really experimenting with structure. Um, and the same with like tuning, you know, like on the on Pyramid Electric Company, he uh, around that time, uh, he got really into Ali Faketure. Uh, I think there was a few reissues that had come out on Nonsuch or Ryko around that time. And he got really into like African tunings. And he was like such an odd guitar player anyway, because he started off playing bass. And then when he started Songs Ohio, in the mid 90s he had a tenor guitar basically just a four string giant ukulele basically you know he played that for a long time and then he switched to electric but he'd play an electric with only four strings and then slowly he at some point he had i think around axis and Ace or something you know he he went full-on guitar like six string guitar but he um and it's not like it's not like he's the first person to really dig into alternate tunings or anything like that. But like, you know, he would listen to those Ali Faketure records like over and over and just like really dig in and trying to figure out what tunings they were in and the picking and stuff like that. And, and I think, you know, and again, he's not the first person to do that either, but like, I think he was able to like integrate that into his, writing in a very unique way that was still wholly his. Like, he was just able to, like, sort of take that flavor. Like, would
0: he be over at Roadworthy Guitars? Yeah, out he worked at Roadworthy for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, he would just do it, you know, as something to do. He didn't have to work. I think for a little bit he needed the money, but he'd work there even when he didn't have to, just because he was a worker, you know, and that kind of helped him stay sane when, you know, and it was like, you know, maybe 15 hours a week or something like that, but. Yeah, he he was a guitar nerd.
0: When did you first start realizing maybe he had some issues?
1: It was around when Magnolia started, or shortly thereafter. You know, and that you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like you, it's hard to. He's, because he was such an odd duck. Anyway, it was sometimes hard to tell. I don't think it got really serious until like the the latter part of 2000s, like 2008, 2009 is when it got pretty serious, I think. And you know, he would just like call up, and you know, you could tell he was. And it would be like 11 a.m. or whatever, and he was pretty drunk. You know, it got really bad when he moved to London. Um, he and Darcy moved to London. She had gotten a really good job there, and he had lived in London when he was in college for like six months or something. And so he he liked he liked the city, but I think I don't know. It's complicated. I think part of it is I don't. He loved Chicago, but I don't I don't know how much of like a big city person Jason actually was. And I, um, but he had a community in Chicago that I think helped a lot of his Oberlin friends moved to Chicago. And he had, when he was living there, he was able to sort of embed himself and sort of expand that community. I think when he went to London, I think he was, this is my take on it, you know, I think Darcy would probably have another take on it, but I think when he, when he moved there, I think probably the lack of community uh, affected him more than he was expecting. That's my, you know, and I think, I think there's a ton of other problems too, but that, that, I don't think that helped at all.
0: What neighborhood in London was he in? they I think that
1: was another problem I think when they first I think it was when they first moved there they moved to Brick Lane it was right when Brick Lane was like coming up you know it was like the same time Williamsburg was coming up and um, Jason was never the type of human to live in that type of neighborhood and then they ended up moving outside of London like 45 minutes I think it was like West London somewhere um,
0: well, how did he end up in
1: Indianapolis Oh, yeah, he was in Indy for like a year or something. He and Darcy were living down here, and they got married. And then I believe Darcy got her the job for the company she was working at um, up in Indy. They have different locations all over the world. And I think they had one in Indy, and that's where she got I think that was her entree into the company. And so they moved up there, and they bought a house up there that... It was like on the south side, terrible neighbor, like there was, you know, crack houses around him. You know, he got enamored with the house because there's sort of this barn out back and like the mythology, and again it's 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 Jason speak, so you don't know how true it is, but the mythology is that Dillinger had hit out in that barn at one point in time. And, you know, he was in love with that the idea of that. But they bought the house, and it was like, an, it was a decent house. But like, I think the neighborhood was really bad that they 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 couldn't sell it for the longest time, and so that was a real that was a real bummer for for him. I know that like he that was a real thorn in his side because you know they ended up moving to Chicago after that, I believe. But they still had this house that they couldn't unload for a long, long time. And then you know after he came back to the states, when he. Uh, he came and collected him, went and collected him from London to get into treatment in the States. Um, he was hopping all around, and then you know, he ended up back in. Uh, that's where some treatment facilities are. Yeah, last time I saw him was in Bloomington. You know, I can't remember the exact last time. It was one of a few play times when... Uh, my wife was severely pregnant with our first kid, and we had gone to a comedy show at the Comedy Attic. And I think it was Tig Notaro, actually. I think that might have been the last time. But I, I might have hung out with him a few more times when he was in Bloomington. But I didn't see him after he moved back up to Indy, just because like, around that time, it's like, I was either just getting ready to have my first kid, or and then she came, and like I just I was super freaked, not freaked out, but, well, I guess freaked out, <laughs> um, but, like, super busy with that, and it was just, like, really hard just adjusting to that, and, like, the thought of, like, spending a day and going up to Indy to see him was just, like, it was really challenging for me. I, I definitely regret not doing it, but it was a super challenge for me. You know, my dad was an alcoholic, and, and he died from causes of that, and uh, and so, like, m- you know, we, we, we paid for a lot of his treatment and we're happy to do that. And we try to get him down here and keep him in Bloomington and keep him clean. It was really hard. And like, um, you know, my, my take on it is like, it's just, unless you want it, no one else can do it for you. And like, and that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, obviously, or anything like that. But like, it's like, you have to like, flip that switch in your brain that is like, you're going to do this. And that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect either. But I think he tried to flip that switch in his brain, but he was never quite able to do it. And, you know, um, and that's obviously very common. But um, my take on it was just like, there's only so far that so much that we can help you at some point, you got to help yourself. And, he, you know, he would go through these bouts of trying to help himself. And, you know, we'd spend a few years like in putting in many different programs and, 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 you know, the people, the his friends in the Chicago circle, his friends up there, put them in many different programs up there and where we're babysitting them up there and really trying to keep them clean. And that didn't work. And they, you know, that there's just, at some point you got to live your own life. And, um, you know be supportive but like until that switch is flipped there's only so much that you can do and so long that you can do
0: that for being in the arts world we get to see this yeah a little too often yeah and you realize how hopeless it is for the person on the outside trying to help
1: yeah yeah it's yeah it's a super challenge like and there's no right way to do it because it's like at what point do you cut bait or whatever and you know i I hate to use that phrase because i don't believe that like we ever necessarily cut bait but it's like it would have taken one of us to be with him 24 hours a day to to for him to stay clean for months on end if not years on end and it's just like out, out, you know it's untenable
0: yeah. how did you hear about his passing
1: uh i was at in at south by in austin and my business partner jonathan Cargill at the time he was in bloomington he called me I think someone at the, the halfway house or whatever it was um, had found out about it and had J.C.'s number. I mean, I don't think it's any, like, necessarily secret for people that are aware of Jason's music, but, like, I think, you know, I think my goal for Jason's music is to, like, really just kind of keep it out there and keep... Uh, introducing people to it because I really do believe he's like a songwriter for all time and I think people are gonna whether he continues to sell records or not I don't really I'm not as interested in that you know obviously selling records is cool but I think you know he is legitimately up there with like the great songwriters of all time so uh, like you know I think for us it's you know we have hundreds of hours of demos and unreleased material
0: and stuff like that. And There are quite a few people listening to this that have never heard his music. What would be the starting point you'd send him to?
1: Uh, Magnolia Electric Company, the album, uh, for sure. Yeah. You know, for me, I think Didn't It Rain is his where he's at his pure peak lyrical um, spot in his career. But I think, you know, Magnolia Electric Company is just like a, it's a, it's a master stroke on all levels. Perfect record. There's a book coming out, you know, I don't know, a biography. Erin Osmond, she was actually in Bloomington for a long time. She lives up in Chicago now. She's a great writer. She she legitimately did an amazing job with it. She did her, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that she was able to like really Deliver on on Jason's legacy in that way, and she, I know she busted her ass, and you know, I guess I I I, I appreciate that because it could have it could have been really
0: lame, and I'm just glad it wasn't lame. I really appreciate you taking time to you know, invite me into the office here. Yeah, definitely. Put up with me. It. It's beautiful to you know, to get to hear these stories. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's fun to talk about it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Ben for inviting me into his office in Bloomington, Indiana. You can find out everything you need to know about Ben at secretlygroup.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you could buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you could buy one of Amy's children's books anything that you buy we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note if you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash just go to itunes and leave us a five-star review leave a comment subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available but if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy amy's music please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.